0: Hey, Sandy. Whoa. Hey, Nora. <laughs> got you there.
1: <laughs> you sure did. Just jumping the gun. Uh, what's, got, <laughs> what's got you so
0: excited? <laughs> I understand that some of our listeners really love to hear it shaken up at the start. And while I can't promise that we will continue to shake it up, I, ca- I can promise that for one episode, I, I jumped the gun. I said hi first. Well, I'm sorry to all of our listeners who
1: have like a weekly bet going or something like that and who are reliant on the money that they make every single time that I am the one who says, hey, Nora, first. Um, That's the secret. <laughs> uh, but to those of you who like to bet on chance, congratulations. Nora went First.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, I I do appreciate that we have a lot of listeners that can't tell the difference between our voices.
1: I don't so, appreciate that at
0: all. <laughs> I appreciate that there are people who think that. <laughs> I mean, you don't know how to say, what was the, the
1: direction that you don't know how to say pro- properly? Southern? So,
0: southern? Southern?
1: Southern. You don't know how to say Southern properly, so that's weird to me. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, how are you doing? It has been a very difficult week. I feel like the last couple of weeks, the ah, the last couple of months, the last couple of years has just been really nonstop. But really, there has been uh, a lot of uh, pain and just horrific Oh, just such a horrific um, impact in the last week. And so how are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, I mean, when you're always kind of anticipating that something bad is going to happen next, it's one of those kinds of weird defense mechanisms, I guess, to be able to anticipate and it's really hard. I mean, you know, we, we just organized a vigil um, in Quebec City for the the children whose bodies were found at the Kamloops Residential School. And then, you know, there's another vigil now in solidarity with the um, the asphalt family in London, Ontario, after this horrific attack. And, you know, I know among our listeners is a lot of people who are really struggling and... I don't I don't know if this episode's gonna make you feel better but I, I just want to say that I, I I recognize that and uh, you know that you're not alone that there's a lot of people struggling right now because what we're faced with in this country are really profound profound problems that we need to we need profound solutions for. And of course we talk about that on this show, but, you know, sometimes those solutions feel elusive or impossible or, or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, what gives me, um, some sort of comfort, uh, in these moments is just, um, taking a look and seeing how people, are waking up to the reality that we live in, in, in a world where um, the people who have made the promises to, to keep us safe, the folks in government to, to do what they can to make sure that things don't happen again. Um, I think that we're realizing that those aren't the people that we can rely on, and that, in fact, we do have to rely on uh, one another. And there is, uh, for me, some hope in the way that uh, people have been... Uh, doing what they can, coming together to take care of one another and and to plan for a future that uh, isn 't the one that we 're living right now um, and so in in the darkness uh, that that does provide me with some some solace and hope um, and though uh, that may not be the same for everyone, uh, I hope that at some point you know we do uh, bring forward uh, more than we are now this uh, this new world that so many of us are are trying to build and i'm really grateful for all of those people who are doing that work um and uh yeah i just wanted to to point to that because uh, i think it's um i think it's of critical importance
0: yeah, yeah. This this week's episode is going to talk a little bit about these themes uh, and Islamophobia, how it exists within Canadian society, and making broader links uh, between things like foreign policy and the war on terror, and the way that the Canadian government has been so implicated in so many ways of of creating Islamophobia, normalizing Islamophobia within society. Um, But we're also going to talk a little bit about the pandemic, of course, because it's still on. And where is it still on? And what's it still looking like? Before we do that, we have some folks to thank. I should turn it over to you, Sandy, to do this part.
1: (laughs) Oh, sure. So, yes, I would like to thank Neil, Ebony, Megan, Laura, Jessica, Liz and Heather also at uh, Chief Stern's office, thank you, Matt Loretto. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, continuing <laughs> to change um, the, the person who you show up as <laughs> on our, uh, on our patreon. Thank you so much for all of your support uh, in helping us to put this little podcast community together. We appreciate you.
0: So Sandy, I'm not sure if you've seen, but. The cases in Canada are really dropping, like things are going really, really well. And it's all thanks to the vaccines, right? Like public policy hasn't really changed to diminish COVID and our politicians have put all of their hopes into vaccines. But that's that seems to be like kind of good news. Yeah, it looks like the
1: cases are dropping. It looks like people are able to get their second vaccines a lot earlier than they thought so that seems like kind of good news but whenever I hear this kind of good news coming out of Canada I'm wondering what communities are being missed in that sort of good news story because Canada tends to do that sort of thing and so you know I went looking and I saw that that's not the case everywhere these um This good news story of cases dropping, of uh, people being able to get their second vaccines, that's not happening across the board.
0: No. Um, And so, you know, we're recording on Sunday. And one of the biggest, I guess, probably the biggest hotspot in Canada, certainly the biggest hotspot in Ontario right now is the Porcupine Health Unit, which is a health unit that stretches, uh, it's northeastern Ontario, stretches from uh, Timmins Uh, and up to the James Bay coast. And it is such a hotspot that as of today, there are more cases per 100,000 people in the porcupine health unit than there were on the worst day in Peel in the third wave. Yeah. And so, you know, some of those cases are in Timmins, but most of those cases are in indigenous communities uh, in the northeast, and so there, 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 there. I think the the vast majority are in Kesheeswan, but there's also many cases in Fort Albany and in Attawapiskat, and you know you might know some of these names from every spring when flooding forces Attawapiskat to to to, to relocate, and same with Kachesawon. Uh These are communities where uh, they've been displaced for um, diamond mining uh, in Ontario's very like ridiculously called Ring of Fire and um and these were communities that also uh, were uh, had vaccination campaigns early on but you know they were so early that teens couldn't be vaccinated and there's there's a lot of teens there's a lot of children that live in these communities and so now yeah we have really remote raging infections in communities that do not have like ICUs, they don't have hospitals. Like they're 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 communities where people have to leave to be able to get access to healthcare. And it is such a disaster that we have arrived at this point in the pandemic and that COVID has been raging to that extent.
1: And it seems to me from the stories that I've been reading that this isn't um this isn't like it was un foreseeable. I mean, this is something that could have been planned and mitigated. It sounds like a lot of the cases are coming from the just the fact that the the nature of these communities are such that if you need to go and get Um, a doctor's appointment, you're typically going to need to leave the community to get that doctor's appointment. You're going to need to travel uh, for some time to go get a doctor's appointment. And maybe while you're traveling, you go and get the things that you need uh, for your home that you're not able to get uh, um, all the time because of the, the remoteness of the community. And so people who are not uh, feeling well um, are traveling out and then coming back in. um, And also people who might be feeling well are also traveling out and then coming back into the community. So um, it sounds as though there has been uh, some calls for planning around isolation infrastructure for Kasechawan in particular, and that those calls have gone unheeded. And so... You know, it's just another one of the ways that our government continues uh, to fail uh, First Nations in their in their responsibilities for things that that um, you know, they are meant to provide like for healthcare.
0: Mhm. Yeah, according to the Winnie Bay Co Area Health Authority in cash alone, this is a community that has almost 2000 um, people living there. They have just under 200 cases. Oh, wow. So the scale is, like, is alarming. And, you know, I, I pay attention to Northeastern North Ontario more than a lot of Canadians do because my family is there. Um and I know how little attention Northeastern Ontario has gotten during this pandemic. In the first wave, they had, if not the highest, one of the highest case fatality ratios, but the overall numbers were smaller because the population is smaller. But they were routinely not talked about, right, by our Toronto-based Media. I want to give a shout out to Nick Dunn, who is a reporter for TVO that covers northeastern Ontario, um, and he's been really sounding the alarm. And so there's a lot of really good stuff written at TVO um, about about these uh, outbreaks. But it, it's just a reminder that you know when we when media concentration collides. With colonialism and racism. And we just don't hear the stories if you're not like really looking for them or if you're not living in close proximity. And even if you do live in cr- close proximity, I mean, the the, the news that, that is available is, is not certainly not what it used to be. Uh, and and there's not many reporters that are able to bring these stories um, and, and hold people to account. The other thing that's happening right now is the largest outbreak of the Delta variant. And so the Delta variant is the variant is is I think we're calling it like the most virulent variant. It's the variant that has been ravaging the United Kingdom. The largest Delta variant outbreak in Canada right now is tied to Marys River project of the Bathland mine Marys River project we have talked about on this on this podcast because folks uh there had been protesting the expansion of the project from Baffinland, and so again you have these fly-in work projects, and now because people have all flown home, they have sent Delta COVID into whatever communities that they uh, that they live in, and and there's been at least one death attached to that outbreak, and again it's not getting that much news. I saw it reported in the Toronto Star, although even there, like you have to pay to get past the paywall or have a way to get past the paywall, outline.com. And even then, (laughs) the news that someone had died connected to the outbreak um, was kind of buried in the story. You had to read quite a bit to get to that information. So, you know, it's, it's, like we have in Canada by and large avoided these kinds of like nightmare scenarios because there has been a priority and and indigenous communities have done so much important work to mobilize people to get vaccinated when the vaccine program started. But as you said, Sandy, this is all like foreseeable. This was all something that should have been, that was and that, that should have been mitigated um, by, by governments and, They weren't. And now people are suffering. Yeah. So I I just think
1: that we should remember these things as as we um, hear these good news stories and demand that when these stories continue to be told, but also don't let our governments get away with um, the uh, further entrenching um, communities, uh, into, uh, these difficult situations. We have to, um, respond with the kind of skepticism, um, that we know that our governments deserve, uh, when it comes to, to, to these issues. And so when we see good news story, everything's going well, we should, we should just have a little, just a little inkling that maybe things aren't all exactly as they seem, because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, the way that this, this, um, pandemic works is that if if we we aren't taking care of all communities then all communities will suffer that's kind of how this whole thing works <laughs> so you know if we're leaving some folks out especially in in communities like flying communities or in workplaces where people are leaving and coming back that is eventually going to reach the rest of us and so let's um, let's not let uh, let's not jump the gun um, and let um, these stories um, uh, uh, just not be reported.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's two more things I want to mention about this before we move on to the next topic. The first is that Canada... It was revealed uh, today or yesterday paid a, a prime to get more vaccines as fast as possible. And so rather than paying $5 per dose, we paid something like $9 per dose. And it's very curious, right? We're the nation that bought the most vaccines. We are paying apparently like much more money to get them accelerated to us. We really have to be quite critical of the fact that our politicians were so like greedy in the global kind of perspective of um, a vaccine distribution, because, you know, there's there's now massive outbreaks that are happening in countries around the world. Um, I saw like really like five alarm fire kind of thing, Um, uh, uh, stories coming from Tanzania and from Uganda. And I'm sure there's others, uh, you know, that I've really been looking too too closely at this. But, you know, there's there are countries in the world that there hasn't been a single vaccine given. And. And, and this is a real shame. Like, I know that everybody is so excited that we can go back to our normal lives and whatever. But the way that Canada has has interacted in this pandemic has been really gross. And I, I think that we have to be very critical of that when, um, when we're thinking through our kind of our role as global citizens uh, throughout this pandemic. The second thing I want to say is like this outbreak at Mary's River is just like... Another example of industry that should have been stopped that, you know, at, I, I think we're through it now. But in the last month, something like every tar sands project in uh, in Alberta, in northern Alberta, had an outbreak, a massive outbreak at it. And there have been uh, at least seven or eight workers who have died related to these outbreaks. And and it's like, why? Why have we ha- have we allowed these large projects to continue during this pandemic, right? You've got someone like Jason Kenney who's like relying on the vaccines as the way to allow industry to continue uh, and mining has not been shut down. Energy projects have not been shut down as if they're like essential and they have been driving this pandemic. And so, you know, it's even clearer to see that now because there are, you know, as things are are getting better and as cases are dropping, but the but the outbreak, like this is Nunavut's first major outbreak that has led to a to a, a workplace related death, and it's like why? Why was that still operating? Why? Why were they allowed why why were they allowed to 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 put workers' lives at risk, and why were they not just forced to pay workers to stay home? And we're talking about the the wealthiest companies in Canada. We're talking about companies that uh, make a lot of money in energy, unless you're uh, unless you're TransCanada related to Keystone XL, which we're going to mention in a second. But that the, these companies should have been forced to pay their workers to stay home, and and that that alone would have stopped this current outbreak related to the Delta variant
1: yeah speaking of fossil fuels Nora, there is one energy project that um, is is uh, it's, it's dead it is, uh it is a large one <laughs> we've been talking about it over the years and the developer has pulled out after years of strife with the project that was really built from on the ground, activism. And that is the Keystone XL pipeline. It's dead, Nora. Mm. Keystone's dead.
0: Keystone XL. (laughs) Keystone XL is dead. Did you see how much money uh, the Alberta government lost on this? I was actually looking for the figure yesterday and
1: I did not find it. So please tell me. (laughs) It's $1.3 billion. Jesus. Taxpayer dollars. Yeah. I wonder what the Taxpayers Federation is going to say about that.
0: <laughs> They'll probably like just forget to put out a press release. Um, the, the The funny thing about these massive infrastructure projects is, like, the companies know that the that oil and uh, you know oil expansion is on its final legs, and so there isn't a, a company in the world that will undertake a massive project like Keystone XL or like Trans Mountain unless there is major buy in from the government that they're that they're that the Pipeline is passing through, and and so this is where Canada is just such a fucking joke because we just keep throwing money at these massive pipeline projects, and the companies are like, great, like that's our assurance, we're going to try, but they're never going to happen because the 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 winds of change are are blowing our energy in a different direction, like towards wind. <laughs>
1: wow, that was uh, terrible,
0: Nora. I know. I'm about to like cross the floor uh, to the Liberal Party like a fucking Green MP with that kind of language. <laughs> Yeah, come on.
1: Oh, I apologize for all that listeners. Continue.
0: <laughs> on. So it's just a joke. So it's like congratulations to all of the activism, you know, indigenous led activism, especially across the United States to stop Keystone XL. Um, and uh, fuck uh, Jason Kenny. Like, uh, you know, I guess we could just have a, a podcast called that. But there are others out there that are called that basically.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I guess the final topic, um, uh, that we wanted to talk about today is of course, Islamophobia. I, oh. mm Nora, what has it been like? I'm asking you because you're in Quebec city, uh, and you know, the last, uh, sort of, uh, event of islamophobia the last sort of uh, fatal murderous horrific event of islamophobia that got the kind of coverage that the that the one that just happened in in london got was in quebec city um i imagine that there were vigils and so on what was it like and uh and i ask that just knowing that uh at the times that those vigils have happened um Politicians and folks in power have made a lot of promises to communities that they haven't followed through on.
0: Yeah, I, it, there's no question that people here have been deeply touched by what happened. I you know, like like all across Canada, but there is certainly um, a closeness to seeing an act of violence like this. and there's, of course people who survived the act of violence, right. There were 39 people present the night of the of the shooting at the mosque in Quebec City. And so those people all have families. They all have community members that they're connected to, right? So there's there was a lot of really direct connection to what happened here. Um, but one of the things that I was struck by was a comment made by Bufeldja Ben Abdallah, who is the spokesperson for the um, the Islamic Cultural Center, one of the mosques here, but the, the mosque that um, that had the attack at it. Uh, and he said that there was a member of the mosque who moved to London thinking it was safer than Quebec City. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's something I hear a lot of, of, of people who live here. There, there's, there's two different approaches that many people have taken. One approach is no, no one's pushing me out of my city. I'm staying. And the other approach is this is not a safe place for me. I need to leave. And for the folks who I've talked to about wanting to leave, and they talk to me a lot about this, because I'm from Ontario, it's always like, well, you know, what's, what's Waterloo like? What's Ottawa like? Ottawa is obviously very um, attractive to people, because, the, you know, you can speak, uh, you can speak French. Uh, what's London like? What's Windsor like? What's, what's the West like? And people, I, I don't, I, I, like, I think that, you know there's the the two solitudes in canada like the language barrier it, it doesn't really allow the translation of what like the day to day life in these communities how similar they are uh, how similar london is to quebec city i was talking about this the other night with with friends trying to describe what london ontario is like and I was like, it's so similar to Quebec City. I mean, it's more diverse. That's a big difference. That the that the, the the non-white population, the racialized population in London is is much higher than in Quebec City. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's so many similarities as well. And. I think that that's been surprising to people, and it's surprising um, just because of the way that we talk about racism in Quebec. It's like very focused on Quebec and very focused on the Quebec government and the actions of the Quebec government. That it really has shaken people to to see. That, that these things can happen anywhere in Canada. And and partly, I think, you know, because of, of a lot of the, the Islamophobic attacks that have been happening, have been happening uh, even further west. Sometimes that news really doesn't translate here because there's fewer French-language journalists and then you have to catch, like, the national, like, Canadian news rather than, like, the local or Quebec news. And so, like... There's this there's this like sadness of of this and, and this fear of this like, holy, holy hell, like this is really deep. This goes really deep in Canada. This is something that exists in every corner of the country. And I think that that has been part of the way that people have reacted to this, this deep sadness and feeling of disappointment and anger and I don't know fear, as I said.
1: Yeah. And uh, related to this, and uh, I'll show you why, is, uh, of course, the, um, is the discovery of uh, 104 other potential graves of children at another residential school in Brandon, uh, Manitoba. And um, in the wake of what's happened at Brand- Brandon and Kamloops Residential School, or the, or the grounds of the former Kamloops Re- Residential School, and all of the protests that have happened, uh, one city in Canada, Victoria, has, um, has said that they are not going to be celebrating uh, Canada Day. Uh, come July 1st, they're not going to be doing the, whatever programming they were intending to do for Canada Day they're not going to do it. Um, this has caused uh, some pushback from a lot of people um, at, who are invested in I don't know wanting to feel like Canada is really great. but what Nora has said is uh, really important. It's actually built into the fiber of what uh, how Canada tries to build its identity, like a Canadian identity uh, to exclude other identities. And the identities that it excludes includes, that's a really awkward way to put it, but the identities that it excludes includes um, uh, folks who are Muslim, folks who are indigenous, and folks who are othered in this kind of white supremacist landscape that is Canada. And um, for, for those of you who are skeptical about that, I, I mean, gosh, like, the the proof is is pretty much everywhere to the way that uh, folks responded to um, to Nora when she talked about um, how people responded to the Humboldt tragedy versus other tragedies that happened uh, happen in our, uh, our communities to the way that the government, is able to pretend as though they really care about Islamophobia when, um, uh, like, literal legislation, the literal attempts to legislate Islamophobia through things like the barbaric cultural practices um, hotline, let's not forget that that was a thing that existed and was debated um, uh, in our federal governments, um, to uh, the the other ways that... Uh, um, uh, folks who look different uh, or who practice particular faiths, even the idea of looking different, looking different from what, um, the, 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 who we imagine as the, the typical Canadian, all of that is built into the fabric of who is this Canadian identity, who gets to be this Canadian identity. It's the reason why, uh, you know, uh, after, after this you know, horrific finding, of uh, this proof of genocide in the last couple weeks. The response in the National Post in the Globe and Mail is to say, well, if we we throw out people like John A. MacDonald, if we critique people like Ryerson, then we'll have to throw away all of Canadian identity. And then who will we be? This deep attachment to this ugly, ugly, ugly uh, history is a white supremacist attachment and it really does permeate everywhere in Canada. And so where does that leave us? Those of us who do not, who are not white, who who are not, uh, I don't know, what's the, you know, a certain type of Christian, who are not uh, men, you know, like those of us who do not fall into those categories, where does that leave us? It leaves us unprotected really anywhere, whether it's in Quebec City or whether it's in London, by the dominant, by the dominant uh, uh, powers, by the government of Canada, by the idea of Canada. And so we really, I think it is really critical for us to, you know, refuse this idea of, of Canada, of a Canada to be celebrated. What is there to be celebrated What is there to be celebrated?
0: I think we have uh, now quite a library of episodes where we talk about refusing to celebrate Canada Day. (laughs) And it's it's interesting looking at where we are today from where like the discussion or the discourse was a, a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Um, there have been many conservative uh, politicians that are now having like this mea culpa moment. I saw Tim Upple, I, I heard Karen Vecchio. Like these are these are MPs who are around Harper's Circle who like opposed uh, Bill M103, M- just recognizing that Islamophobia exists. Um, and and I think that that's a really interesting Like way that the conservatives are going to approach this, that there's going to be these moments of like, oh, my God, I had no idea I was so ignorant. And now I know, which is not sufficient because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has told us forever you know has told us now for many years like like how many children probably were killed by the residential school system and we, we know the horrors those are those are there and they they knew them and still you know uh, uh, Valcour their their minister of uh, indigenous affairs at the at the time refused to stand when when there was a the the, the re- I think it was the re- release of the report although I might be I might be wrong but there's like this iconic moment where everybody's standing and Thomas is staring down at uh, at Valcour and being like Obviously, he's not standing. Um, But we're going to be very like keep an eye on that because the the conservatives are gonna be very slippery in how they atone for uh, what they did in the past when they should have known better. Um, But that is something that's emerging as one kind of like weird, like kind of path of, of action, I guess, among conservatives. But the other thing that's really important is solidarity, and and you know that's that's one thing that um, at the at, with all of the work that I have done in Quebec City, the the solidarity that I've seen between the leadership uh, of the mosque and the 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 indigenous community here of Wendake has been very very strong and very important, and I think that making those kinds of connections is really critical because. You know when when you start to see so so Quebec right now is is I mean, has been p- planned for months, but is, is finally uh, starting an inquiry into the number of children who were taken from indigenous communities across the province brought to a hospital for some sort of, sort of um, you know treatment or or whatever and then that, that died. Um, there was there' was many children that this happened to, and um, it has been a while now that the, that the government has promised that they're going to have an inquiry into this. But the actions of the government, yeah. Is like so critical in this because it's always the actions of government that we come back to, like the the the, the actions of the federal government to 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 consistently fund the, the 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 quote unquote war on terror and the fact that we spend two billion dollars every year for something that we're doing in Syria in Iraq that's not very clear and why are we there and the 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 fact that you know the Canadian government has conspired with American state officials to. To, um have canadians arrested uh, on trumped up terrorism charges to continuously fuel the, the media narrative of the war on terror so the, the 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 war on terror and so the way that our government regardless of who is in power consistently continues to cause harm and to cause the conditions for then like more extreme versions of that harm to happen in the streets this is this is the force that we need to reckon with and this is the like we have to confront those kinds of those kinds of expressions in the street at the same time as confronting politicians and I, and, and I think that, you know, I, my, my member of parliament ran by me today and I was like kicking myself that I didn't like confront him. I don't know what it's going to take. Like I just – I don't know what it is going to take to get a government of, of any stripe that has no problem when they're in power doing the, the most awful things, denying the most awful things, continuously taking – you know, indigenous people to court, trying to destroy documents like that are really, really important to not destroy that, that, that explain that document, what happened within residential schools. What is it going to take to get these people to change?
1: (sighs) Well, to be honest, um, in the realm of government, okay, and and so I'm not talking about like changing um, our society in total because I think we know that that doesn't come from government. But in the realm of government, what it's going to take is is electing a government that isn't invested in the government. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be honest, it's going to take like uh, who was I speaking to recently about this? I can't remember. I was speaking to somebody recently where I was just like, I, I I'm I'm through with like you know this kind of waiting for. Um, you know, you know when you're younger and you just think to yourself, well, eventually all of these people who don't get it will no longer be the representatives in government and our, our generation will take over and we will do it all. And then you like watch all of the people around you become drones and you're like, God, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's a way that we have to... We, I mean, we have to be, you know, for for those of us who engage in governmental politics, in electoral politics, we have to be good with electing people who are not invested in the idea of Canada. We have to, we have to be good with electing people who are going to say like, I actually don't want to hide, um, this evidence, uh, whether it's, uh, about residential schools or, um, sexual assaults in the military or what other heinous crimes that Canada has been involved in, enslavement on Canadian soil, all sorts of different things. I don't want to hide that. I actually want to reveal it and to, to show, um, us the, the, uh, the way that, um, Our society continues to impact people to this day because of the actions that this government has taken. Like, I want to make sure that we are um, engaged with people who are not invested in uh, this this idea of Canada, um, providing energy to the world. Like, fuck that. I don't care. Like that's not, I'm not invested in that as an idea of a country. I'm not even invested in the idea of a country. I am invested in the continuation of the human race. I think some it <laughs> somewhat depends on the day invested <laughs> in that it depends on the day. It really does somewhat invested in the idea of the continuation of the human race. And so I want to uh, to elect people who are more invested in that than they are in this weird idea of Canada that is like super connected to like oil and genocide (laughs) that to me seems weird who are those people and who are those people who uh are going to say like actually to me it's really fucked up that we are creating this idea this this identity of Canada Um, That is exclusionary of other societies, because guess what? Uh, The the identity of Canada is a made up weird thing that hasn't existed for very long. And it is created um, uh, specifically in mind to exclude uh, people who don't present in a particular way like that is it is unavoidable. Um, That is unavoidable fact, OK? Canada, the idea of Canada as like a white settler uh, nation of of people um, who are mostly from uh, descendant from Britain, but then expanded to Europe, I would say, as immigration expanded uh, is like, why? Why be invested in that? Why? What is what is the reason? (laughs) What is the reason For that investment, there is none. And so um, but for whatever reason, I think those who are currently invested in electoral politics are very scared, are very nervous that they will not get power, um, uh, that it is uh, too dangerous to engage in uh, that sort of politic to say we created this. We created a world And through our actions and inaction, where what happened in London is possible, where what happened in Quebec City is possible, where what happened in Kamloops is possible, what happened in Brandon is possible. That's what this country is. And
0: worse than that, that it's going to continue to happen.
1: Yes, exactly. And so we, we need, for those people who, you know... In terms of this, what is it going to take? It's really going to take people who are not invested in um, those types of politics, who are not invested in Canada as it looks currently today, who are invested in people, Mm -hmm. who are invested in communities and making sure that people are safe, people are protected, that our communities are healthy. Even if we have to destroy the idea of what is Canada. And that might just be what it takes.
0: It's so funny listening to you. I'm, I'm, I'm like wondering what parties you're talking about, right? Because the Liberals, everyone who gets elected with the Liberals fucking has a Canadian flag tattooed to their ass, right? And you're just like, you people are fucking some else. <laughs> and the Conservatives have an even bigger Canadian leaf tattooed to their asses and it's blue. <laughs> the The party... Oh that is really a good example of this. They're less of a good example now, but they, but they actually are, like, they have a history where they were quite effective, is the block. The block shows up to Ottawa, and they're like, Fuck this place. We want Canada to not exist anymore. And the only thing that we're going to be doing is we're going to do things that are in Quebec's best interest. And then they've got all these different ways to de- determine that. And when the Bloc was the official opposition, remember the Bloc Quebecois was the official opposition in, in, in Ottawa for a while. Uh, they were able, because at the time, this is like two decades ago, no more than that, <laughs> uh, they, they were a social democratic party. And so at the time they had access to researchers and they were pushing like kind of a progressive line on Canada, on the, on the global stage. and and actually holding government to to account. But they didn't have the end goal of making Canada better. They literally want Canada to fucking be destroyed. And that's actually kind of illustrative. Um, Not that the bloc is good today, as I've said. I think that they have taken a hard right turn and and are basically shit. But this is where, like, the NDP – And the Greens need to fucking get their heads out of their asses because this—if you walk into Ottawa with the the hope that you're gonna get government and and then then you'll have to all hold miniature Canadian flags and talk about how much you love Canada and have this ritualistic fucking Canadian flag branded to your to your ass. Like you it will never happen. It will never happen because the core of all of the progressive politics that that we are pushing for in this country all go back to these structures that need to be destroyed. And so that political courage is so important and you know it's 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 one thing for uh the NDP to say good things now, but it's like the conservatives are saying good things now. We we need the NDP to be saying good things all the time and not jumping into this jingoistic like small businesses are the backbone of the economy of Canada, which is something the NDP has said like a fucking 100 times or 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 the NDP like laying down the heavy at the last convention to make sure that a fucking extremely not controversial amendment to saying that the NDP would oppose future uh, oil extraction projects, like just really basically stuff. But the party's like, no, no, we have to, we have to stop that because the governing party cannot have this kind of radicalism in its, in its like policy book that no one fucking reads anyway. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to take for the NDP. Cause I actually don't think, I think that they have in their core built into them, like a lot of Canadian flags also tattooed to their butts.
1: <laughs> well, it's like, it's, I, I think that the orientation of like not being committed to a Canada and perhaps even being committed to a non-Canada is, is like really liberating. Like it opens up so much, like so, so much of what I've heard in the last week. And then some has been this, you know, from politicians has been this rhetoric of like this, you know, this has no place here, or this is nonsensical, this senseless tragedy that has no place here. It's, you know, fuck I I hate to say this but it is not nonsensical it's not senseless there is a logic to it I think I said this last week and um it is how many times can you say that this has no place here until you realize that actually it must totally have a place here because you've said it a million times (laughs) and I mean if you go into if you go into it uh, with that orientation of like this has no place here, I mean, maybe all you have at, at the ready is like, I don't know, um, symbolic motions that are like we we hate Islamophobia, that you like to take, <laughs> take a symbolic motion to to reaffirm Canada's commitment to to the end of Islamophobia, I guess. but if you if you come at it with this, actually, this is built into the facade of Canada, I think you are forced to take a deeper look at where where it is built into the, to the facade of Canada, because, yeah. and then, and then you, you have to orient yourself to destroying it. I, I really do think that the frame is, is part of the problem. And so you, you like, you have to be, um, I, I really just think that, the, you know, what is it going to take? It has to, it's going to take people who are not committed to the idea yeah. of this Canada, who aren't committed to the idea of an Alberta, you know, like the Alberta that gives energy to the world, like who gives a shit? I don't care. Because <laughs> like, then you're like trying to figure out how do we continue to be Alberta as we have committed ourselves to be at the same time as uh, building a, uh, a future where humans can live? <laughs> like, Or like the idea of even, you know, like the idea of a Quebec, like fuck, who gives a shit? <laughs> How, you know, Quebec is also a colonized a colonizing society. like I just like who ca- who cares about the idea of a Quebec? Like perhaps the idea of a Quebec is a problem, perhaps the idea of an Alberta is a problem, perhaps the idea of a British Columbia of all of it is the problem. And if we come at it from the frame that it is built into our structures, then I think we'll do a little bit more to root it out rather than trying to protect the structure in the first place and then also say, by the way, the structure really hates the shit even though it keeps allowing it to continue. <laughs> ¶¶